I just didn't realize how much went in to what you do until I just started like getting ready for this episode. And anyway, before I like blab along, cause I'm just excited. If you want to take a second, cause we'll just dive right in. If you want to take a sec to introduce yourself, just let people know who you are and everything. But sure. Yeah. So I'm Aaron Blaisdell. Mm -hmm. I'm a professor of behavioral neuroscience at UCLA. I study animal cognition and mostly that's with rats, pigeons, and humans. I've done work with hermit crabs before and then collaborated with people on even other species mm. like scrub jays and grackles and a few other things here and there, I think mice even. Yes. So yeah, but that's the gist. That's the short story yeah. <laughs> of who I am. Yeah. You know, and I, for people listening, I already know what you're thinking. And yes, this guy is going to handwrite a letter to every listener and let you know what your pets are finally <laughs> thinking about. No, if you have the time. Also, it's probably impossible. You want to know what your pets are thinking? Go to the local Chinese store, get a fortune cookie, crack it open, and that'll apply equally well to pretty much anything I could probably tell you. <laughs> so in researching this, I'll just like start with the first thing that blew my mind in terms of like it's obvious but not obvious was realizing that what would make your work difficult is the human biases that we have in terms of like what we read as like this emotion or that emotion and i guess my first question is what is the process of removing that bias yeah, and that's a great question. And actually, that is a great place for me to give you the two things that make my day job challenging. So the first one, exactly as you said, is removing our biases are about these, what they call anthropocentric view. That means you look at your dog and you're like reading your own type of emotions into your dog or your cat or whatever you know pet you have or an animal out in the wild. And sure, that is definitely something that's plagued the field of animal psychology, animal cognition since its inception. And we have lots of methods, we can talk about those, to try and reduce or remove those biases as best we can. There's an interesting reactive problem that especially I face and people who do the kind of more high-level cognition part of it, where they're looking for evidence in animals of processes that we often only ascribe to humans or maybe even other high-level primates. And that's where, because of the backlash against viewing animals as mini-humans, you know, as ourselves, there's a backlash into forgetting that many aspects of what makes an animal an animal psychologically are the same aspects that make us psychologically an animal, the human animal. Mm. So for example, and by analogy, I use this analogy. So I have five fingers. Does it mean that if I look at a squirrel and I say, oh, look, it can use its hands. It can pick things up with its hands. It can try and open something with its hands. Am I being anthropocentric in saying, oh, no, oh, just because it's you know, behaving this way and has hands means it's something like to what it's like to be a human to have hands. In reality, it is a lot like that. Yeah. They have a very similar hand structure and organ and with the functional properties. Well, if you look at the brain of an animal, of a vertebrate, that would be all the like animals on land and fish in the sea, then what you see in the brain is basically the same systems of organs, of brain areas that humans have. 
There's like the cortex, there's a frontal area, there's the back area, which is for humans for vision. And all mammals, let's just talk about mammals for a second. All mammals have all these same kind of systems, maybe not as elaborate as ours, but that's the thing. A rat, a squirrel, other rodents have five fingers on their hands. We have five fingers. A rat, a squirrel, a human has a hippocampus like us, a memory you know, a structure in the brain is for memory. So I always push back against my colleagues who say, oh, you're just anthropocentric, anthropomorphizing your animals. And I'm like, I'm using this as thinking it's kind of, instead of saying anthropomorphized, maybe it's a vertebrate trait like hands are. And so to, it would be doing a disservice to not look at the animal and say, well, it has some of the same brain structures as me. So why not look at the same kind of cognition as in me? So that's the one I, in my professional life, I actually encountered that problem more because yeah. uh, some of my crowd is much more hesitant to ascribing those things to animals. Wow. Yeah. That's so, you know what, before I even say that, because now when, for some reason, when listening to you talk, I was just wondering specifically you, like, because obviously there's so many directions that you can go into under like the umbrella that is psychology and understanding aspects of just how people or things think. But like, did you always know that you wanted to go into animal cognition or like where did you start off like generally and then go? So what was that? Right. So the history of why I study animal cognition and the particular animals I do really does start from when I was a little kid. And I had all the dinosaur books. I loved looking at dinosaurs and fossil record. I loved going out in the wild and catching snakes and getting bit by different bugs. And I was a nature boy that way, I and especially animals. I was never big on the plants and botany. It's fun to be amongst a forest and everything, but it's always the animals that I loved. So when I went to college, I decided to study anthropology. Now that's humans, but because I was looking at primate evolution, which is something you could study in anthropology. I was really interested in the evolutionary process. And so that's what I thought I was going to study, you know, fossil record kind of things. But it turns out in my end of my junior year, I had an opportunity to work in a primate lab where they had a bunch of different type of primates like chimpanzees and baboons and stuff. And I was helping with behavioral studies okay. and just watching these guys and how different they were from the animals I was used to, like dogs, cats, or squirrels out in the wild, and how more similar to humans they were, and yet also different. Yeah, I really kind of pivoted then and decided, well, I'm going to study this behavior and the cognition. What are they thinking? Yeah. Right? And that, so that's kind of when I really started thinking about cognition and other animals. What's the mind of another animal like? Wow. And so that's what led me then into psychology from anthropology. Yeah. Dude, that's so cool. And I, and I wonder, I know, obviously, like, you must spend like a lot of time doing research and in the lab, but I wonder how much, I love that you said that you, as a kid, you just enjoyed nature in its element and being surrounded by it. So is there ever any like benefit to like maybe step out of the lab and like put on your like Steve Irwin hat and just be out there and observing animals in real time rather than just like from under I'll say that as an expression. I don't know if you actually look at them under a microscope, but... I have a similar analogy, which I'll give okay. you. Yeah. But yes, and that's also a great question. In fact, we just covered that in my class, Comparative Psychobiology, okay. talking about the history of the study of animal psychology. And after Darwin, who kind of was the first one to really study animal behavior from this comparative perspective, like, oh, humans have memory. What about other animals? And what other kind of you know psychology do other animals have? Because... 
he actually studied a lot of that. He wasn't just writing about natural selection, but then the implications of it, which were that other animals must have similarities to humans in many ways, including mental attributes. So he was the first true comparative psychologist. But after his initial book on that, the field went in two directions. In the United States, well, North America, including Canada, Canada, the United States, for the most part, it went in the direction of laboratory research. The experimental method in a laboratory was big in America. In Europe, however, it went into studying animals in the wild, in their natural environment called ethology, right? And so those two kind of approaches diversified and diverged from each other. And there was a lot of tension between them. But it was starting in the 50s, but definitely by the 70s, there was a bringing them back together, a resolution of realizing that we need to understand animals in their natural setting. That's critical. But as well as the carefully controlled setup you have in the laboratory is also critical for really trying to discover mechanism. Like, what is it about the mind? What is it about the brain even? And those are the kind of questions that sometimes are best suited to a laboratory. And the analogy I like to use, rather than a microscope, is actually a test tube. If you're a chemist Mm. and you want to study chemical reactions so you can uncover the elemental processes of how chemicals react, combine, and what that tells you about those chemicals, the nature of those chemicals, you need a clean environment, sterile, where you know everything going in and it can observe everything coming out of that system. That's the test tube, okay. right? So we in the laboratory who study animal cognition in the lab, we use our operant chambers, Skinner boxes, mazes. Those are our test tubes. We know that they're kind of an artificial situation, but they're purposefully so because we want to keep everything really well controlled. Mm-hmm. At the same time, a good experimental psychologist in the laboratory has a mind, an eye toward realizing that what behaviors they're investigating in that test tube, that Skinner box, are hopefully ones that also translate to the real world. They're telling us something about the natural behavior of the animal or how the natural behavior, the system that governs the natural behavior, is also being expressed appropriately in a laboratory setting. And it's something we I always think about. Yeah, that would definitely lead into my Next question, because like as you were speaking, I was wondering if the animal, you know, let's say they like wake up in a lab and it's their first day in the lab. And I wonder if they interpret it as just being in a new environment or if they feel like they're being held captive. Like, are they Mm. aware that they don't have the freedom that they had? Or is this just a new environment? That is a great question, too. And actually, that dovetails back to a question you asked earlier. I didn't get around to addressing why rats? Why pigeons? Right. Why not dogs, which is what Pavlov studied back in a Russian physiologist a century ago? And why not primates? Very closely related to us. Maybe that would tell us more about their connections between humans and other animals, something that's similar to humans evolutionarily. Well, it turns out there's a history in American psychology, starting in the North American psychology, of using rats back in the, gosh, 100 years ago. And then actually 120 years ago, like 1903 was one of the first rat studies published. And then in the 30s and 40s by B.F. Skinner, a behavioral psychologist at Harvard, he also started, he was using rats, but he also started using pigeons. Mm -hmm. Now, what's great about rats and pigeons is these are both domesticated species. 
They live really well in human captivity. Pigeons have been raised by humans for centuries, millennia, probably. You know, like for passing messages, messages to across enemy lines, like in wartime, or even just relaying message. You use a pigeon to send your message. Yeah, Darwin raised pigeons, and he talked about that in his first book, The Evolution by Natural Selection. And so, pigeons really are suited to human captivity. They seem to thrive, do very well. Although they do well even out in the wild, they really do equally well in human captivity. Hmm. And so that makes them a very useful animal. Because as your question was alluding to, asking, there are many animals that don't do well in captivity. Hmm. What are some of those animals that? I guess it's a two-part question of like, what are some of those animals that don't do well in captivity and is it a, like, from day one, do they immediately realize that they're being held mm. captive? Or is there, like, just this gradual realization that, like, wow, this is now my reality? Uh, that's a tricky one to answer about the realization part. But some of the animals that we know don't do that well, especially from a comparative psychology or animal cognition perspective, the crows. Mm. People, I have a colleague in Germany and then other colleagues in other parts of the world, they'll capture crows, bring them into the laboratory and try and do behavioral, especially like kind of cognitive experiments with them. It's difficult because they don't like being in captivity. They are real skittish with people. And so you've got an anxious animal mm-hmm. and that's affecting its behavior and its ability to use some aspects of its brain. Just like an anxious human, it's not going to do as well on the test of reasoning. Because when you're anxious, that's part of your brain that's kind of shutting down the reasoning process or inhibiting it to some degree. Yeah. Well, think about having an animal that's always kind of anxious because of its captive situation with humans around. That's going to potentially interfere with the kinds of cognition you might want to extract from the animal and see what is. I'm probably going to say, man, that's so interesting, like 50 <laughs> times during this podcast, but this is, it's just so cool, man. Wow. So something I was reading, getting ready for this was that, and this again, blew my mind because what I realized in getting ready for this was that there are so many more steps as to like what a thought is and what like leads to that and how you interpret things in the sense that. I was reading, this may have actually been your profile on the UCLA site, but I was reading that if we wake up and like, or if we see that like the temperature is 75 degrees, we'll accept that it's 75 degrees. But if we see that like it, you know, the thermometer was lowered like artificially, like you just lowered it to 40, that our brains can tell, like our brain just understands what manipulation is and like understands that it's not actually 40 degrees. Oh, I know what you're, what you read. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, well, duh. But then when broken down scientifically, it's incredible that like, it just made me realize that I took for granted that I understand that the thermometer is not fact in relationship to like what I, like I can tell that it's not 40 degrees outside, but I'm sure there's like a term to describe what I'm talking about, but it sounds like you guys do tests that test the layers and levels of how an animal like just interprets something and like the meaning behind something. But I'm sure you can talk on that. Right. So you, the what you were describing was some of the way that we pitched our work on understanding causal interventions. Mm-hmm. 
and whether an animal can make uh, like rational inferences from an intervention versus merely observing something happen. So let me unpack that. When we think about human cognition, we obviously have learning, we have memory, but then beyond uh, perception, like being able to see and smell and taste and you know, all these basic things. But beyond that, we also have this ability to reason about events in the world, like physical reasoning, like billiard balls. Like I hit the cue ball and it hits that, it's going to hit the bumper this way and angle off there. We kind of understand something about forces Mm -hmm. and we can predict how forces will interact with each other. And if there's a desired outcome, like sinking a ball into the pocket so you get a point, we can manipulate those now. Yeah. Or dominoes, the way one domino, you see there's two dominoes are standing up next to each other. One's starting to lean and and lean over. You know, if it falls, it's going to hit the next one and cause that one to fall. That's a causal chain, Hmm. right? And the way the world works is causal. We know that there are causes all around. This is what Isaac Newton was trying to study, the fundamental causes of the universe, the laws. And Einstein and other physicists just trying to understand these causal texture of the world. We also know there are social causes and psychological causes. I could smile at you. Well, see, you're smiling back. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's such a, a, it's instinctive, right? But that's a cause effect relation within the social domain. And so we were interested in, and we continue to be in my lab, to be interested in studying the, whether animals like a rat understands or represents the world causally. We know that there are many ways to be sensitive to cause effect. So let me give you an example that I use in my classes. So if in Pavlov's famous experiments, he was testing and studying how dogs can learn to make some kind of reflexive response to a cue that predicts food. So you put food in the dog's mouth, they'll salivate. If you play a sound like the bell, right, and then put food in its mouth so it hears the bell, maybe perks up its ears at it, and then you put food in its mouth, the food makes it salivate. You do that a few times, what we call a pairing, the bell followed by food in the mouth, just the sound of the bell will cause the dog to start salivating. That's what Pavlov called the conditional response. Now, that's sensitive to the causal nature of the world. If there's an event that predicts or causes an outcome, and that outcome is something that the animal desires, then they can use that cue to predict the outcome. Uh, So that's where kind of this whole type of learning that we call associative learning, associating events with each other, like Pavlovian conditioning, is one way that animals could be sensitive to the causal nature of the world. Mm. But humans have that ability, but we also have the ability to reason, ah, A was a cause of B. It's not just predictive of B. We know that when there's clouds outside, rain clouds, it predicts there might be rain. We know that, but we also know it's because the clouds hold moisture. The clouds actually cause the rain to fall down. Yeah. There's a source of the rain. So that's what I was testing in rats. Wow. Wow, man. Yeah, there's so many, again, there's so many questions that I feel like this is one of those fields where when you have a question and you answer it, it then like also produces 10 more questions. And even with what you just said now, like I was just wondering, I was like, man, when an animal, let's say in the... Amazon rainforest sees that there's something wrong happening and that like trees are being destroyed for whatever reasons and they can sense that there's something wrong happening. I was wondering if like they would interpret that as 
the world ending <laughs> or like as like if or if they understand that like the region that they're in is being tampered with but then i was like man i don't know that might that's might be too uh, many i don't know how you would even know whether the animal has such conceptual abilities exactly. to differentiate my region versus a greater world yeah we do that because we're told that there's a greater world mm -hmm. from other people who have been around the world think of a hunter-gatherer tribe back before there was any civilization a more modern type civilization they were really restricted their whole world to them even like even ancient Greece, like their whole world to them was just what they kind of explored already and knew. It was Columbus who kind of discovered from a Western Europe perspective that there are lands beyond Western Europe and Asia. And so I think it's the same with an animal born and lives in any particular environment like the Amazon rainforest. It knows its environment, what it's experienced. They don't have ways of really communicating uh, symbolically the way we do what others know like oh yeah like it's not like their friends telling them oh yeah this is not the way things used to be but this is the way things are now they don't have any they're disconnected from any historical record mm -hmm. they just have what they have and what they could pick up immediately from their other social group so i think to get back to like that scenario i would think that they're whatever the animal is let's say it's a parrot or a monkey or something something we might imagine has some higher level cognitive ability more likely to at least they hear the bulldozers coming and knocking down trees, and it's the first time they hear that. Once, they'll be startled. Two, they'll pay attention to that, and they'll be initially fearful of it because it's new and it's loud and it's kind of surprising. Three, they'll probably try and investigate it as flee initially, but also try and study and understand it just because it's something that could be a potential threat to them. And so I don't think that they would really think of it in terms of existential threat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they would definitely think of it as a personal threat. And so I think that's kind of the type of psychological processes that would be engaged in that scenario. Yeah. Wow. So I'm curious, like, if before, and I don't know if this is in your wheelhouse, but with humans, because on a scientific level, I wonder what people in your field would consider the imagination to be in terms of like just visualizing things. And so before we had the technology to travel, I mean, would you think that humans would have the ability to imagine that there is another version of like their village, that like there's some other village out there? Like, did we have that ability before we could travel? Yeah, and we always did travel, at least locally. Hunter-gatherer band society is one of like a fission fusion in the sense that there are smaller groups that occasionally will get together with other groups or trade. People will leave one group and join a different band for a period of time. There's a lot of fluidity there, and it's often seasonal or cyclical. So I think people from 100, 200,000 years ago likely lived in societies that they did travel a fair bit and talked to, and they had symbolic communication, they had language, communicate with people who had been other places and came back. So I think at the birth of human, kind of modern human psychology, we did have that awareness and imagination, if you will, of a greater world around us. But it wasn't obviously to the level that we have now. 
And another thing, when you think about it, all modern, the only hunter-gatherer bands we could really study are contemporary ones because then we can like learn their language and interview them and learn about what they know, what there's their understanding of the world. They all have mythologies of some type about things beyond, either it's gods or it's other things like that, mystical nature of the world. So I think it's part of human nature to imagine science fiction, if you will. Mm. Mm. So I don't know if it's something that you can see visually when scanning brains and maybe there's something that we tangibly have that's different. But in terms of like, you know, the human ability to paint such specific pictures and take things so far in the sense that like, you know, at least what I believe to be true is that it seems like other animals are primarily concerned with survival, you know, making sure they're safe, they have food and everything. And then it seems like, I feel like boredom is a very human thing and like the things that can manifest from boredom and other emotions. And so I guess in terms of like measuring intelligence on a scientific level, like, is there anything that like we just tangibly have up here that other animals don't have? That's a great question. And obviously that's what a lot of people want to know about. Is there anything that makes humans unique cognitively, their mind compared to other animals. And after all the reading I've done, the studies I've done, and just thinking about this, my personal perspective is that it's a yes and no kind of question. I would say that there's nothing fundamentally different in the neuroanatomy and neurobiology of the human versus other animals. I mean, it's a quantitative difference rather than qualitative to a large degree. And yet one aspect of the human mind, and it could turn out to be this is actually a qualitative difference too, but that, the only way I'll say it is this. I think language, a true language that can express almost anything by a combination of symbols, right? That's true language that only humans have that kind of open-ended true language where you can put all kinds of meaning together through stringing symbols together in various different ways and recombining them. And that is something that does separate humans from all other animals in terms of, but it, to me, language, I don't know if it's more of a tool mm. that we are learned, our brains are capable of acquiring that tool and therefore it boosts up us up beyond a Rubicon that other animals haven't crossed. Yeah. Or if there actually is some physical instantiation in the nervous system of the human and the brain of the human that really is different than in other animals that allows for that language process. But I think it does come down to language as being the key driver of the major differences between humans and all the rest of the animal kingdom. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, I mean, because it definitely is not our physical prowess. And all that being said, I imagine, well, I guess I, I won't assume this, but do you research the depth of the communication, let's say, between rats in that, like, so my guess would be that if there's something, if a predator is nearby, that, you know, they would have some type of sound or something that they could make to, like, other rats that, like, to warn them. But I'd also assume that, like, it doesn't go as far as to say, hey, there's a guy with a red shirt that's, like, about to, like, you know, and, like, he's kind of cool looking, like, in terms of, like, just 
the semantic content of a vocalization. Yeah, like in that, like, is it robotic in the sense that it's just like danger and that's basically it? Or how detailed does that get? Depends on the animal. I don't study this directly, but there are people in the field who do study this kind of question. Yeah. Rats do make ultrasonic vocalizations, so-called because they're above the level of human hearing, and they can make those if they're in distress. And whether they're making them intentionally to warn others or it's an elicited response that plays that anyway warns others, but it just happens to be elicited without any intention of warning others is an open question at this point. Now, in primates, it's been more heavily studied. Like, what is a predator call and what does content of that? What's the intention of the caller, the signaler. And that, for example, in vervet monkeys, Dorothy Cheney and Robert Seyfarth have studied that quite a bit. And in Kenya, in Amboseli National Park in Kenya, there are vervets that live there and they put speakers into, like hid them in trees. And what they do is they recorded different individuals and they use a playback of their recordings to set up situations experimentally in the field to see what does the monkey think when it hears a call. I'll give you a couple of examples of what they've done. For example, if there's a group of the monkeys are in a little area and they're near one of these speakers and the mother is there and other females are there, they'll play back the vocalization of the infant of that mother. So they hear the infant making like a crying noise or something. The mother looks at the speaker that's playing that. The other mothers look at the mother. Whoa. So it's a way of uncovering a little snapshot of with, through the behavior, elicited behavior. What do they represent about social relations? Apparently, it seems like the other mothers recognize that call, as the mother herself does, and the non-mothers ascribe that, oh, that's her baby. Like they know there's an association there and they look towards her because she usually, when the infant calls, will do something like it elicits a, a motherly behavior on her part. So they look at her to observe what her reaction is going to be. Hmm. Right. So that's like a really neat use of that kind of technology. Yeah. That's, man, that's so cool. And, you know, when you said that, it was like, man, I wonder if there's anyone messing with our world on that level in terms of the aliens. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I, <laughs> and it's funny because it's, I wonder what your opinion on this through your perspective is in terms of like people. I think more and more people are getting like becoming convinced that like somewhere along the line, like it, what seems to be popular now is like this blend of evolution and aliens and we're like, mm. yes, we evolved, but like some alien thing like did something to some of us that made us like evolve faster and blah, blah, blah. But like, I mean, I don't blame people for going in that direction just because like people want an answer for like why we are so much more mentally advanced and trying to like explain past things like building the pyramids and stuff like that. But maybe the better question for you is how has your research like impacted the way you just see the world and maybe understand humans through research on animals? I see humans as a continuum mm. from the animal kingdom. I don't, to get back to kind of that, you were kind of going around the issue of aliens and their influence on the evolution of humans and other life. 
that's great speculative science fiction. And we cannot rule it out that there's such a thing could have happened. I mean, why not? I'm not here, sitting here. I don't have the proof that it didn't happen. Yeah. Although it's completely plausible that life came, started on Earth monophyletically, like one origin point of life. And it all kind of led to the array, rich array of species we have right now that could have been without any kind of external interference that's also completely plausible so i don't know <laughs> but in terms of just what has my research how has it influenced my look at the world it's almost like i would turn it around and saying i think the way i was as a little boy is still with me oh. i think i very early on kind of had this very open and view of what nature was and how it operates and there's been nothing that's really come along in all my studies and reading and everything that's really disconfirmed my initial assumptions or initial thinking. Hmm. Hmm. That is so interesting. The fact that you say like as a little boy, just because I, and I'm guessing that we as humans are probably the only animals that separate ourselves within stages. I, and I don't, again, I don't know if you would know this professionally, but like in terms of like becoming an adult and then like within your sense of self, you're now identifying as an adult and then that like influences future behavior. But do you do any research that deals with like whether or not animals have a sense of self? <laughs> I wrote a essay back when I was a grad student called The Biological Definition of Self. Nice. Because <laughs> I had been thinking, that's another thing I did when I was in college. I read some books on consciousness and the philosophy of mind, and especially Daniel Dennett's book, Consciousness Explained, which had come out back in the late 90s when I was in college, was a real eye-opener to me in kind of opening up the whole understanding of this as a field of study, the mind. So your question again was about the sense of self. So I wrote an essay for a class where I really kind of outlined my thinking at the time of what does it mean for self? Because when we think of consciousness, we think of self, like, oh, I am conscious. This is me and that's not me, that kind of stuff, right? So, but what does that entail? And so I kind of use my evolutionary thinking to go, well, where does that come from? And what's the minimum reductionist view of where that comes from? And it led me to think, well, you know, a cell, a single cell like an amoeba has a semi-permeable membrane. That membrane changes so that it can move forward toward appetitive things like things it needs to eat for survival or away from threats, things that could be dangerous to it. And so they have sensors that detect good things and bad things out there, only letting certain things inside. And then in order to make a new amoeba, it has to replicate. Amoebas can just like siphon off of each other, break in two, but most animals, uh, creatures, need to replicate where the DNA strands unwind they make copies and then they rewind up in the two separate copies, right? One becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight, that kind of thing. And they are making something. They're making, they're copying instructions to make a self. Hmm. Then that self has a membrane, has a boundary. And it says, you stay out, you're dangerous. Oh, you come in, I need you. I think that is a fundamental origin of a sense of self is this discrimination of out there in here 
and what's good and bad to let in here into me and what's need to keep out. Uh, so wow. I think that's where it goes back to. So in that sense, I mean, I guess every animal has that to some degree in terms of like, I immediately think of like them being able to identify who is a part of their tribe, who isn't, who's a predator. So I guess the question is really how deep the sense of self goes in terms of like, I am Ricky and I am like a metal fan or something, you know, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that that's so interesting. Again, like now it just has me thinking of a million things in terms of like, do, you know, like would a rat see a dog and say, that's a funny looking rat or understand that it's a different animal. And I'm not even sure what like, you know, computing powers are necessary to even go in either of those directions. But anyway, I mean, I don't, I know that's a really specific question, but like, would you have a general idea of maybe how like a rat just sees the things around it that's not a rat? Yeah, uh, I think they, one, they, they can learn to perceptually, they can learn what things look like. And they learn through other senses as well, what things smell like, what things sound like, feel like. So they have access to all the sensory apparatus and they have perception, which is kind of modifying and computationally processing that sensory data that come in. And then they can learn, they can form concepts basically of objects, including living objects like a dog or a cat or another rat or a human. They can learn those things. They can discriminate, make discriminations between them. So they have all of the kind of machinery necessary to be able to observe that the dog comes into the room and that it's not another rat. Mm. They can discriminatively quite distinct from a rat. Okay. Yeah. Wow. It's cool, man. When determining what or ranking the most intelligent animals to <laughs> least or vice versa, how, at least within the scientific community, how is intelligence defined in the first place? That's a toughie. That's a big toughie. I had a recent graduate student, Mary Flame, who actually for her dissertation research focused on the idea of intelligence from a comparative perspective. How do you compare intelligence across different species? Mm-hmm. And... Also focusing more on the kind of, well, okay, so the area of intelligence goes back to actually people like Darwin's grandfather or great uncle, one of his, the other Erasmus Darwin, was actually somebody who studied intelligence in people, like individual differences. And so there's a whole field that goes back to the 1800s called psychometrics, the measurement of psychological phenomena or like learning, reasoning, problem solving, all that kind of stuff. And so there's a long history of that work. And that's where like all the intelligence research is centered around, well, how do you measure things? Is there something real about this term intelligence or is it more of a kind of a epiphenomenon of all of our observations and measurements? And it turns out that it seems like there is something real about it. And I think that what When we kind of are every day thinking of the term intelligence, what it really boils down to is our thinking of reasoning ability, right? How smart. Oh, yeah, you figured that out quickly. They didn't figure it out so quickly. Like that's really our kind of our gut sense is what we mean by intelligence. And that seems to be different across different species. Different species seem to have different abilities of being able to problem solve, to flexibly think through things. Rats being relatively intelligent, I would actually say, compared to mice, for example. Yeah. And 
parrots being much more intelligent in this sense than pigeons, for example. Yeah. Wow. And I was thinking of like, I almost have the same question for mental illness in that like in 2022, in the history of like diagnosing mental illness, if that was like all relative to whether a person could hold a job and could like do these man-made things and that like, oh man, like it just, and obviously I know that this is in your warehouse, but it makes me like wonder if mental illness is relative to some extent to just like fitting into the circumstances of your society. Cause I guess it would be a problem if you couldn't hold a job, but like in the natural world, there's no such thing as a job. It's interesting to me. Yes and no. My perspective on mental illness is a little different than that. Okay. My perspective, and I know that one's out there. Like people talk about how, oh yeah, boys and can't sit still in class and diagnosed with ADHD. Yeah, but in our evolutionary history, when did you have to sit still for this long to focus on something somebody else tells you to that might not be of your general interest, right? So maybe it's not them, it's the school. And in a way, actually, that's what I think too. But I think it's a bigger issue. And I think that bigger issue is what I refer to and others refer to as evolutionary mismatch. Hmm. And what that is where an organism, especially developmentally, an organism is developing in an environment that is not the one that they're kind of adapted to. Hmm. There's a mismatch between the kind of environment that had shaped the evolution of that species and what like it's optimally designed for compared to the environment of that particular individual and the one that they're developing in. And classrooms are a great example of that. The modern educational system, I think, is a great example of an evolutionary mismatch in that it's so different how children in modern westernized type societies, how they learn and develop is very different than in like a a typical hunter-gatherer band society, which is what has been around for 200,000 years. Mm. So 200,000 years of one way of learning, which is much more open-ended, self-driven, mixed age groups, more about whatever you're interested in, more freedom to explore, and just curiosity, fun, laughter, not highly competitive. Mm. I mean, there's always little games and competition, but it's not, you don't go through life in those hunter-gatherer bands always being compared and like to go to there, you have to be able to compete and to be the best one in your class to do that. It's nothing like that. To the last few hundred years of the industrial age, which is where our modern school system arose, where everybody's very conformist and splitting everybody by age group, you wonder, how do people actually do so well? I think there would be more mental illness than there might be. Yeah. But I see an increase in the certain kinds of mental illnesses, especially anxiety disorder and mood disorder, like depression, the mood disorders in general. And I think a lot of it is driven by the mismatch of the environment for school, which even since I was a high school student in the 80s or middle school student till now, I've seen an increase in the amount of homework given. The expectations, the competitiveness to get into a college has just been even worse now than it was when I was in high school. And I think that that is leading to a lot of the, especially anxiety disorders. Wow, that's, I mean... 
Like you can't really argue with that. And that I've never heard it described that way in terms of evolutionary mismatch. I'm gonna steal that. Please do. Please do. <laughs> it's a, it's a, such an important concept. Everybody should it should be known out there. Yeah, because I mean, it, it makes so much sense that the problem with population increase is that as like the population increase as it increases that the things like efficiency become even more important. And unfortunately you have less power to like curate an experience for like individual people as the, I mean, you know, if there are 10 people in a classroom versus 30, you just have more. Why does it have to be in a classroom? Why does it have to be curated? I'm pushing back. These are, it's, we assume these are important. Yeah. But that assumption needs to be questioned, yeah, examined. And you're right, dude, because I think my perspective on it has been shaped by, like most people, has been shaped by people within education and not people who actually understand behavior or, or... It becomes kind of an echo chamber and very politically driven. Yeah. And that's the problem. Yeah. And the possibilities, too, are so limited because everyone's kind of coming from the same place so like it might it seems like a big difference when you're debating but it's like it's so close it's like this apple versus that apple but anyway that's so interesting man so yeah something i was actually i saw like this video maybe three or four days ago i thought this might be a question for you and that i think yeah it was an elephant somewhere in india this man i think killed this mother elephant's daughter and her child but it was like maybe it was like a year had passed and then she like brutally murdered this man and like people there were saying like they've never seen elephants behave this way and it just made me uh, and of course like within the comments people are like arguing talking about this and that but like you know it made me wonder like in terms of for all animals in terms of just what is memory for an animal? Like you said, like they don't have history books, but no, but they'll have personal memory. Right. In terms of like, we all have the neuro machinery to encode experiences in a long-term format. Right. And with that being said, I guess it would be like, what is like the concept of yesterday for an animal? And obviously, I mean, even the word day is very human, but you know, what is a yesterday for an animal? And, you know, maybe for that elephant, would it be revenge or would it just be her remembering him as a threat to elephants? And just like, he's just a threat that needs to be eliminated. Not necessarily like that's the guy that like killed my daughter. But anyway, I don't know if you study in animals like that type of thing. No, I hadn't heard about this. I'm not surprised that now, first of all, it's an anecdote, so we don't know what, how to interpret the behavior. So we can all speculate, and of course, you see this on the internet, and people are in the threads, as you said, we're all speculating on all across the board about what that to interpret that behavior. Yeah, but it's an anecdotal situation. We only have partial information about even what happened, so it's really hard to come up with any clear actual answer. Mm. Couple things about what you said. One, memory is long-term. All animals that have a nervous system seem to be able to encode certain aspects of what they can experience. And an elephant, for sure, can remember, can learn to know what a person is and identify that person. Or they look different to some degree than others. So they can, as long as they can discriminate between people, they can learn about individuals. And then if they have a memory of that individual 
threatening and doing harm to that mother's own progeny, that's something that the memory could be there for her life. And if she sees that person again in the right context, she could act on it in a sense of, I don't know if I would call it necessarily anger, if that's actually what the, the motion was. But obviously there would be some kind of emotional component to the response. And I wouldn't use the term revenge. Who That's a tough term to define yeah. and, and to come up with a behavioral technique to measure objectively. But certainly I could see a reaction to, because of that association between that person and some awful act he did to some individual that was close to the mother. Yeah. I feel like you hear this a lot more with like monkeys or, you know, yeah, monkeys held in captivity in that like eventually that monkey like got his revenge on like the dude who's been lying in a cage. But you're so right in that. Like I never even broke it down far enough to even question whether or not it's revenge or not. I just kind of assumed like, well, mm-hmm. yeah, like again, that's the anthropomorphizing, which is always a danger. And we started with the conversation with that. So it's easy to anthropomorphize at the same time. It doesn't mean it's not a possibility that such emotions and such belief states could be in a non-human as well. We just have to be much more careful about ascribing evidence to those when we see it compared to, we have to just be careful and say, we're not really sure. Yeah. 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 Hey, dude, saying I don't know seems to be the hardest thing, especially in today's world. Do you imagine like if there was like a, you know, like CNN, Fox, if there was just like a news network that was like IDK, like, and their conclusion was that they just don't really know, but like we tried our best. Mm-hmm. World would probably be It's honest, place. right? Yeah. For me, it's easy to say, I don't know, especially like I'm up from the front of my class and they'll ask me a question and I and actually don't know the answer. And I'll be like, I don't know. And there's ways to ask. Maybe there's more information out there, but I currently don't know. And it keeps me out of trouble because if I just made something up on the spot <laughs> and speculated or passed it off as like, yeah, this is probably what it is, not letting them know it's really pure speculation then later it can come back to bite me in the butt. And that like maybe on a test question, I put a test question to test or assess their knowledge, their understanding of the content that they learned about. And because of that speculation that I now had forgotten, Mm -hmm. maybe it changed how they viewed that answer. And now I'm like, oh, shoot, I shouldn't have said that. I should have just said, I don't know. Because now they're challenging me on a question where I know that's not the right answer, but because of something I speculated about, Right. Yeah. So if I'm just honest and say, I don't know, that gets, keeps me out of trouble. Yeah. Dude, that's smart, man. And going back to what we were talking about in terms of measuring intelligence, I feel like I would like on my list, I would put roaches at number one, just because like, I feel like your ability to evolve to like defeat past obstacles is, well, it's not intelligence in the sense that like you chose to compute something. But like the fact that like they can survive a nuclear like fallout like that to me is like, right. well, that's, that's, yeah, that's not intelligence in that like flexible cognition. Yeah. It's just optimal for survival of a species. Yeah. All right. And in fact, Daniel Dennett made a very similar comment in one of his books or articles or something in that he said, well, by certain definitions of intelligence, a tapeworm is the smartest animal because it's decided I'm going to live in somebody else's gut, let them find the food, let them chew it up, let them pass it to me, start digesting it, and then I'll just absorb it once it's digested into me instead of letting them take it. Like, that's pretty smart, yeah. right? That's a parasite. Yeah. But it's not intelligence in the sense of it's not a thought out strategy. Yeah. And those are the two different terms of 
of intelligence we often have. Something can be designed as if a, a real smart intelligence were behind the process of making something designed to function really well in its environment. Mm. But that's different than the term intelligence of having a brain that instantiates the software we call the mind that is able to resolve all kinds of problems without knowing what those problems are going to be, mm, right? Yeah. So think about it like a Swiss Army knife. A Swiss Army knife is not great at any one of the things it's designed for. Like it's not great as a butcher knife. It's not great as a, a nail file, but it does the job for almost any kind of environment, it can do well enough at being scissors. It could do well enough at cutting. It could do well enough at magnifying glass. That that it can be do make it make the user have a lot more options in whatever environment they happen to find and to be in. So it's like that universal tool kind of approach. That's kind of what we think of as intelligence. Really, like being smart cognitively is more like that flexibility. Yeah, yeah. That makes so much sense, man. That's so cool. I because I have my podcast has so many ranges of professions. I leave like every episode going like, man, like what if I like did this instead of music or that? But it's just, I mean, <laughs> the, the real truth is that like everything, if you stick to anything long enough, you start to see like what makes it really cool. But you just have to like stick to it. Yeah. And on that, like, no, just since you've been doing this. Like, are there, do you have like a top, maybe like three or five things that like, since you've been in this field that have just like absolutely blown your mind or maybe things that like you assumed and were just totally wrong about? Yeah. You mean like in animal cognition, neuroscience? Yeah. Yeah. I guess within that, or maybe anything that like really surprised you or maybe things you're curious about. Okay. One thing that surprised me, I don't know when... I kind of realized this, but you know how we love our technology. Our iPhones are so well designed. Like the computer that took humans to the moon in the late 60s, right, was like what, 4K or some tiny, tiny, tiny amount of memory and tiny amount of processing power compared to even what's in your pocket that everybody's carrying around that they're mostly using for social media yeah. <laughs> and taking food pics. Yeah. <laughs> like we've grown much more and sophisticated with the processing power of our technology. Of course, that means that the use for it becomes much more base rather than like high achieving things, which is fine. There's no problem with that. There's no social commentary on that, really. It's fine. That's great. But here's where it comes to your question. As sophisticated as these technologies are in their complexity of computation, they don't even scratch the surface to how sophisticated the brain of an ant is. Hmm. The brain of an ant, tiny right? But what it does, what it allows the ant to do to move around, navigate its environment, find its way back is it operates differently than the computer in your pocket. It's non-linear processors. Our, all our technology is based on linear processing, but ants, not just ants, but neurons, neurons are non-linear. They're like power law processors in the way that they aggregate information. And now you have networks of each one of those being a power law processor. You have millions of them in an ant brain connected together in a way that allows them to do these real sophisticated behaviors that Elon Musk is still trying to solve with Tesla to get it to do even an ounce of what an ant can do. And it can't yet. So when you realize that, and when I realized that, <laughs> and I loved it because 
one, it shows me why it's so fun and interesting to study the brain, the mind, because it's so complex and in a way mysterious, the way base, how it functions, how those neurons produce that kind of behavior, what it's like to be that ant doing that behavior. And you know, what's its personal experience like? And then when I get questions from like my parents, I mean, my wife's parents, she'll be like, oh, wait, what do you study? You study pigeons and rats? Like, why don't you study pe- your psychology? Why don't you study people? Like, why a pigeon? Why a rat? They think of them as like simple little creatures. Yeah, and to us in the common parlance, they're simple little creatures. Their needs are few and easily met. Yet, the machinery that makes them go is orders of magnitude, well beyond what we can even conceive of with our own designed technology. Mm. Wow. And can you like maybe like elaborate on, I and many people have always heard that we understand such a small percentage of the brain and and then that goes into like debates on like how much of our brain we use, blah, blah, blah. But what is it about the brain that makes it so hard to understand? What I guess in my head, I'm thinking about like, is this a math, mathematical issue? Is this like a human bias issue in terms of how we're researching it? It's a bunch of those things, actually. And one, I want to kill that old myth that already is pretty much dead, but it still pops up here and there that we only use like 10% of our brain or something like that. <laughs> you use the whole thing. Yeah. The whole thing is active. Every neuron in there, for the most part, is doing something and not all the time, but at some point in time, it's called upon for a functional role. So that was kind of a, a misunderstanding from way back in the day. Is there any, like, is that coming from a place of like, is everything firing up at the same time? Like, is it's that the- not that. And the brain doesn't all fire up at the same time. Not every neuron becomes, increases or decreases activity all at once. Mm-hmm. Think of it more like a complex network where sometimes certain processes are playing out along this network path and set of connected units. And these others are kind of just sitting there kind of humming in a reciprocal oscillating state. Mm-hmm. Whereas then maybe something happens and now we shift using that one and it comes out of its uh, oscillating state and maybe increases oscillations or does something in a way that's contributing to some function. We're still trying to discover how all that works. Mm. Another reason why it's been so impenetrable understanding the brain and how it does mind is also one, we have no good analog in technology for models. Like we have the computer model, but even that's limited in what it can tell us. Another thing is you open, actually physically open the brain and it all is like just a white and gray mass of stuff. Whereas like you open up a heart, you see chambers, you see very visibly divisible units that have clear function. You look at an arm, I can move my arm up and down because it's a lever. That's pretty simple. And you see the things attaching that pull, they contract and then they expand and like it's very simple. Whereas the brain is this homogeneous kind of stuff. And like, why is this part doing something different than this part? They'll look the same. Yeah. But that's because there's stuff going on at lower levels of analysis that we're getting better at studying. And the other thing is because there are so many interacting units working simultaneously at various scales, that measurement has been a huge issue. To be able to measure all of that in a way that makes sense. We're getting that now. We're starting to get there now. Yeah. These two things, this might not make any sense at all, but like is measuring what's going on in the brain 
like at all times on every single level is it as difficult as like knowing what like every person on the planet is doing at any given time it would be probably more complex than that because every person at least you're only looking at the level of person yeah when you're looking at the brain there is the individual level of neuron there's also the within each neuron there's synapses there are like little connections to the surrounding neurons and there might be a million or more synapses that of one neuron onto the next one or to one of the neighbors. And not all of them are acting at the same time. So even at that level, there's some complex computational process going on that's really hard to measure in a forest level. We could see trees and we could say, oh yeah, that synapse turns on and off. It, it lets neurotransmitters across to excite the neuron it's talking to. So it signals, but the synapse over there on the other side of the same neuron is not signaling to the other neuron over there. So we could see individual trees, synapses, but to measure the entire one in neuron and all of the synapses, what they're doing in real time, and then scaling up to all the neurons and all of their synapses, it's like, it's mind boggling. It's just mind boggling. It would be more like looking at individual humans all across the globe, as well as micro movements of their fingers and whether their stomach is grumbly or, and whether they're farting or something and you know, all these little little <laughs> micro behaviors that we're doing all the time and then and the level of the person and the level of their interactions with other people and the level of groups and the level of like coalitions and the level of voting behavior and like and the level of like currency exchange like you'd have to look at from all the micro movements all the way up and then now you see like that's a problem yeah. <laughs> it's a measurement problem mainly yeah because i'm like it's hard to even visualize what the like how much energy would be required to understand the brain in every single aspect? Like what does that machine look like? Is it many machines that's focusing on like one task? But that that's So insane. the way people have been solving this problem to try and get a whole brain analysis is, and there's still a long way to go, but they're starting to do it with simple organisms. Mm. Like something called a hydra is a tiny, it's what they're in the group called Cnidaria, the same group that jellyfish and coral are in, right? So they're radially symmetrical creatures and they have like, they can swim by contrasting their body and pushing fluid and then they float around in water. So hydra are tiny, almost microscopic. They're really tiny jellyfish looking creatures. They recently have been able to do a complete, and they don't have a brain, they just have a neural network with no central area. But with that neural network, they've been able to image all of the neurons and what they're doing at once across time. So as it's swimming, as it's doing something, feeding, they can measure every single neuron in its body because it only has so many, not nearly as many as like even a honeybee. Honeybee has gazillion more neurons than a hydra. Hmm. So they're starting to be able to get whole connectome analysis of every actual individual unit yeah. And so they're starting to be able to then correlate that with behaviors. And what they're trying to do is from that approach is this, the simplest metazoan, simplest multicellular animal that you can get and that you can measure all the neurons. Now we can say, okay, let's see how it does computation, like to do all the behaviors it does. And maybe from there, that's a starting point to build up that same approach to studying creatures at higher and higher levels of connectivity. And Yeah. 
That, you know, I, as a musician, I always get, maybe just because, like, we all take for granted what we do frequently, but, like, you know, when people are like, man, like, how are you, like, how are you, like, playing on stage with this and doing all this cool stuff? Because, like, I know music seems, like, quite magical to a lot of people, but I always just go, like, man, you know, 90% of it is practice and it's this. It's a lot less fascinating to me now, but, like, you know, then when I speak to someone, especially in psychology, other stuff like i don't know man the work that you guys do just because it's directly necessary to understand the world it's just fascinating man it's insane and i I guess i say all that because i hope that you know all the time crunching numbers and in the lab doesn't like take away from like how cool what you guys well, do. Well, the crunching numbers produces those pretty pictures of the a way of looking at our data, at the results. Yeah. And for me, the biggest thing when we have data come in from an experiment is to look at it in a visual depiction. I want a visual, like a bar graph or a line graph, some kind of graphical, visual graphical representation of the phenomenon that we studied. Yeah. And to me, that's the beautiful thing because it tells you the story. Yeah, man. Well, I guess that is kind of similar to music in the sense in that like, yeah, it's a lot of like work, a lot of like little things that you're doing to like produce this maybe 30 minute show that someone enjoys and loves, but like you just spent like three months getting ready for it. Oh yeah, most of what goes on in the science is not glamorous. We just, sometimes the results can be glamorous results. Yeah, yeah. But you don't see all the grunt work and the, you know, the bench work that went in day in and day out. That was like where you don't notice what's going on. Like you don't notice anything amazing happening. Yeah. <laughs> right? I'm putting rats in the box and I run the program and the program is designed to give them these stimuli and then they make these responses based on those stimuli. And then like we collect what those responses are in a text format, data, raw data file. And then we put all those raw data files together and we have some statistics program go through and like pull out the meaningful relationships between the independent variables and dependent variable. And then out of that (laughs) comes this, like the picture, right? So yeah, from the daily, daily, daily practice, you don't see the magic that if this magic's happening, it's just that you're in it and you don't really see it. Yeah. Dude, this is why I love talking to people outside of my field on the podcast, because like I get to just enjoy like the benefits of your super hard work, you know, figuring all this out. And then I'm just like a kid in a candy store going like, Ooh, what's that? And what's that? But God, when I'm, like, when I'm with like another musician, I'm like, Oh, I can, I relate to like the <laughs> suffering that you, you know, yeah. went through anyway, man, I, I guess, Lastly, just like as we close out, I've been asking everyone this, especially since I had a a guest on a couple months ago, her expertise is in artificial intelligence. And that's made me really wonder what the future of every industry is because of our, you know, progression in technology. And with animal cognition, with our conversations about the brain, it reminded me of like, our efforts, like we're trying to like make brain chips now and trying to really tamper with this. But is there anything that you can see coming technology wise that would make your research easier or efficient in some type of way? Artificial intelligence is providing tools for us, like machine learning, deep learning. And the analogy I like to give for what artificial intelligence, the current wave and what it's producing and what it's providing as a tool is just as the invention of the magnifying glass let us see things smaller than the unaided eye. Mm -hmm. 
and the telescope let us see things further than the unaided eye can see, what machine learning in particular, that branch of artificial intelligence, reinforcement learning, allows us is to see things across extended periods of time that normally the unaided mind and eye can see. So as an example, like if you have an, a rat walking around in a cage and then watching it during a couple of hours, it feeds, it drinks and stuff, you see behavior unaided, just your, the naked eyes watching the behavior, we're looking at it and thinking about it. You can have a video of that run these kind of video machine learning processing techniques on the video image input and it can learn from those data and you can help it categorize. So these are like sometimes supervised learning, but also you can do unsupervised learning where, where it's looking at all this raw video data, acquiring some kind of basic concepts or of what objects are, what things are, and then it can start looking through and processing tons of data on video and pull out like motifs. Oh, wow. Let's say of what the rat's doing. Oh, then it could predict, you know, what would happen if you did a rat, gave something to a rat in a certain context, because in prior similar type context, it's been able to pick up what the rat might do in those cases. Whereas if we're just watching it during the day, we might not be able to pick up on that. Wow. So the machine learning is letting us see lots of data that we couldn't otherwise process just with our own watching and, and thinking of wow so yeah so ai is has is already assisting your worlds by a lot yeah in fact i was just in germany this summer visiting a colleague who has a pigeon lab there and they're applying one of these kinds of programs called deep lab cuts which does just this kind of image processing to quantifying and categorizing pigeon behavior while they're engaged in a task. So it's able to pick up micro behaviors mm. that we are not even observing, but it can tell because they're there in the video footage and this machine learning can pick up on that. And we're going to probably try and use that in our lab as well through a collaboration with that group. Oh, wow. So it's, it's really exciting. Yeah, that, yeah. That's super cool, man. And actually I'm very sorry I lied to you and my listeners. That is not the last question. <laughs> because it, I always have a question that like, I'm like, damn, I forgot to ask it. And this time I remembered. So in terms of, and I don't know if I'm using the right words, but in terms of like things like deception and the like idea of manipulation, as far as I'm aware, it seems like monkeys like know the value in like like it seems like monkeys have a sense of humor and would like know the value in playing a trick on you and obviously humans can do that too but in your studies like are there any other animals that are that use deception or manipulation or like let's say would be aware that they are being observed so would change their behavior because of that Good questions. The, I would push back a little bit on monkeys for sure. Okay. Having a sense of humor. We're not really sure okay. when they do something that looks to us like, oh, that monkey just you know like stole the guy's hat because like, I don't know if it's actually humor or it's just it wants it for some reason. And it's hard to tell. But the bigger question that you're asking about deception is something that has been studied. And it's really hard to tell whether something's intentionally deceptive. So I'll give you an example. Again, with vervet monkeys. Let's say that the monkeys are on the ground and then there's over there to off to the side somewhere, there is a group of monkeys sees that there's a pile of fruit somehow that's on the ground that they hadn't seen before. And there's one monkey 
that's not as close to that pile of fruit as a couple of the other monkeys that are likely to get it first. And let's say that monkey further away elicits a call, like a predator call, an anti-predator call, where the type of predator, the response will be to run up into the trees because a predator hunts on the ground. And so if you're in the trees, you're safe from it. So the monkey makes that call. All the other monkeys run into the trees. That monkey walks over and gets the fruit. Huh. That's deception, right? That looks like a clear-cut case of deception. But what did the monkey, when it made that call, there's a range of possibilities. Maybe the monkey was trying to make them think there was a predator around. He's thinking to himself, like, if I make that call for that predator, that's going to make those other monkeys run in the trees, and that way I'll be able to get the fruit for myself. That's obviously an interpretation that the monkey intended to deceive the others. Or... The monkey has learned in the past when there really is a predator around, it makes that call and everybody runs into the trees. And maybe the monkey sees those, the other monkeys are near the fruit and maybe it makes a call to, because it knows that the behavior of that is that they'll flee in the trees without knowing why. Wow. Yeah, see, it doesn't need it to know why, or maybe wow. it could just make the call because it knows the behavior. That is, it's a good behaviorist as opposed to a Whoa. good psychologist. That Maybe it just knows how to make other monkeys run in the trees. That doesn't know why they do. It just knows that I do this, and they go in the trees, and if they do that, I get the fruit. Whoa. So how do you distinguish between... It's tough. You have to set up real good experimental evidence, and so far I don't think in a while at least, that really good experiments have been able to dissociate between those two explanations of it's trying to manipulate what the monkeys think versus it's trying to manipulate the behavior of the monkey. Yeah. And that, wow, with you saying that, what's really blowing my mind is it seems like it is uniquely human to need to know the why, (laughs) you know? Yes. Actually, a colleague of mine that studies chimpanzees found that's the case. When Children, he studies, and so developmental psychologist plus comparative, he studies children and chimpanzees, often doing similar experiments to see how similar and different their psychologies about something can be. He did a study where he gave children these toy blocks, you know, you stand blocks on each other, and they would get a little treat if they were able to stand the toy up in this little circle on the table. So, unbeknownst to the children, For some of the blocks, he made them the weights different so that one of them, when it was placed on the way it's supposed to be placed, it would fall over. Yeah. And the children spontaneously look at the block and would try and give explanations of why it's not working. Whereas the chimpanzees had the same basic procedure. They would get a little piece of fruit if they stood the block up in that little circle. He had like kind of shaved it down at the bottom a little bit so it was wobbly and then put a weight up at the top so it was unstable. It would fall down. What the chimps would do, they instead of looking at it and feeling it, which are the relevant dimensions of what was not allowing it to stand up, they would like put it in their mouth and taste it and then put it back and try. They didn't seem to be trying to seek an explanation, hmm. whereas the human children were by nature trying to find an explanation. So that was kind of an interesting <laughs> difference. Just our closest living relative to the chimp and young children, already there's a difference. Yeah, that's so cool. That is so cool, man, because I just imagine what makes that even more complex is that there is it varies like from human to human in terms of like I know people that are very much just like, oh, the bottom line, like it worked. Who cares? I don't need to know why. Then humans are like very obsessive over it. But I imagine there is like a fundamental level of like 
explanation that every human needs for something. Like if I, I don't know if a person just like popped out of like the fifth dimension and just landed right <laughs> here. I don't think he would just be like, well, let's say like a friend that we were expecting to come by was here and he just like popped up here. Apparated, what, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, teleport or whatever. Like, and I don't think, you know, we'd be like, well, we wanted Richard to be here and we knew he'd be here. So he's here. So let's not even ask why. Every human being would be like, why? But I guess with some animals, they're just like, well, what I needed, the bottom line, that happened. So moving on. But that, anyway. And anyway, it's about prior beliefs, prior expectations. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, for my listeners, for you as well, for just for the sake of time, because again, I have a trillion questions. We just scratched the surface. I know, I know, man. And we'll do, I, I would love to have you back on sometime. Well, I'm a local, so yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, and, but yeah, this was just, a, I, I knew this would be a fun conversation for me just because I'm so uh, curious about just like, how things work up here. And then, you know, but to just learn the similarities and differences for other animals as well, it's just all so interesting. So thank you. I really appreciate you just coming on no, here. You're welcome. This has been fun. Thank you. Yeah. And for people listening as usual, thank you for, you know, making it to the end. This is a song called Life and we're out. Peace. Peace.